Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Study, Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities and national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe and to promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Jan Rybak, Early Career Fellow at the Birkbeck Institute for the Study of Antisemitism in London. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Professor Anthony Polonsky. Professor Polonsky is one of the central figures in the development of Polish-Jewish historiography over the past decades. He's Emeritus Professor of Holocaust History at Brandeis University and played a leading role in the establishment of the Institute for Polish-Jewish Studies in Oxford. He served for six years on the Board of Deputies of British Jews. He was also the chief historian and played a key role in the establishment of Pauline, the Museum of the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw. There are too many publications to name them all, but I would like to specifically highlight the three-volume The Jews of Poland and Russia, covering the period from 1350 to 2008, published by the Littmann Library of Jewish Civilization between the years 2009 and 2011. Anthony is also the general editor of Pauline, a journal of Jewish studies. These days, he's working on his memoirs, to which I'm sure many of us are looking forward to. And in this sense, I would not only like to talk about the field of Polish Jewish history and minority history more broadly, but also about his personal path and the development of Polish Jewish historiography over the past decades. So Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for this very generous introduction, Jan, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Fantastic. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this field? I was born in South Africa uh, to uh, relatively prosperous Jewish parents, and I grew up in the uh, later years of apartheid in very comfortable circumstances in Johannesburg. My parents, like many other people within the Jewish minority in South Africa, were liberal opponents of the apartheid system. They were close friends of Helen Sussman, the Progressive Party MP, in whose constituency they lived. And they believed that they were for slow change in South Africa and that they treated their servants of whom there were five. So we lived in rather feudal conditions uh, with uh, great benevolence. Growing up in this condition, in in this situation, I reacted against the paternalism and uh, uh, liberal uh, approach to the system of racial oppression in South Africa by uh, adopting a Marxist-Leninist position. The big division among the, in the South African left was between the liberals, people who drew on the Cape liberal tradition and on the Christian tradition of, opposed, of opposition to apartheid, and those who rejected uh, this uh, 
position as being essentially paternalistic and not likely to achieve major change. Uh, to people like myself, mostly young Jews and Indians, what uh, attracted us to Marxism-Leninism was that it enabled us to ally with what we thought was uh, in a class conflict because to the Marxist-Leninist left in South Africa, what we had in South Africa was not a racial conflict, which in retrospect, I have to say was obvious to everybody, but a class conflict. And in this class conflict, we thought that we could ally ourselves with the African proletariat and with the proletariat of the whole world. I should add, that uh, the Communist Party of South Africa was a key factor in the liberation movement and uh, in the late 1950s certainly played a dominant role in the Congress movement, the principal movement trying to overthrow the communist, the, the apartheid system. It was an underground party and you had to be asked to join and, and I was asked to join by a prominent member of the South African Communist Party, Ruth First, who was later assassinated, the wife of Joe Slovo, Secretary General of the party. She was later assassinated by the South African secret police in Mozambique. Uh, but I rejected uh, this uh, uh, invitation because I felt like a number of my friends that this Communist Party was essentially too bureaucratized and uh, that uh, it also had a legacy, a uh, heritage of um, uh, political oppression, which had been clearly uh, manifested in the Stalinist uh, years in the Soviet Union. South Africa, in this respect, was rather unusual in that it was one of the few places where people like myself, who I suppose would be classed elsewhere as Trotskyites, that is to say Marxist-Leninists, but in opposition to the Soviet system, and people who were members of the Communist Party were not only allied, but worked closely together. And this was very important to me because uh, I, I was part of a popular front organization, the Congress of Democrats, which was part of the Congress movement. And we had a weekly study session uh, and this was conducted by a leading member of the South Africa, Communist Party of South Africa called Jack Simons. Jack Simons was an unusual individual because his father was a immigrant, a Jewish immigrant from England, uh, rather unusual among in the South African Jewish community, one of the older uh, people from one of the older South African Jewish families, but his mother was Afrikaans. So, and that sort of marriage was rather unusual in South Africa in those days. Um, in his study session, uh, Jack uh, pursued the argument that what we had in South Africa was not a racial, but a class conflict. And indeed, he wrote a book on race and class in South Africa. Uh, and I remember one of the discussions that we had on this topic. He said, if you want to see how what looks like uh, racial conflict has actually emerged from what is in effect a class conflict, you have to look at the history of inter-ethnic relations in the uh, Russian empire or in the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. This stayed with me. I just, in parenthesis, add that Jack Simons uh, later was unable, he was uh, at this stage, he was still lecturing at the University of Cape Town, but he was barred from lecturing and he ended up as the Chief Political Commissar of the Armed Forces of the Umkonto Wesizwe, the African National Congress in Southern Angola. 
uh, and uh, died shortly after the achievement of majority rule in South Africa. And I went to his memorial service at St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town. And this was notable for two things. One, uh, one of the speeches was made by another member of the South African Communist Party, uh, Albie Sachs. And Albie Sachs gave a long address in which he said, my goal is to prove that it's possible to be a communist and a Democrat. And he gave something that came, an address which could have come out of the mouth of Rosa Luxemburg. And it was really quite impressive. But along with this, a number of the people who had fought under Jack's command in Southern Angola, the young comrades came and one after another said how Comrade Jack was the inspiration of their lives. Now there are a whole series of reasons why we had a peaceful transition, a relatively peaceful transition of 16,000 people died in the last two years of apartheid uh, in South Africa. But one of them was the stress of the Communist Party of South Africa that what we had was not a racial, but a class conflict. Um, so when I came to England, I was above all interested in studying national socialism. Uh, I was trying to understand what we had in South Africa, which was in some sense uh, a fascist uh, system, uh, certainly racially based, but it also preserved certain peculiar vestiges of uh, free speech and of political argument. It was a rather complicated system, and, but I was seeking to understand it. And in order to do this, I thought that uh, one needed to study again or look again at the history of German National Socialism. And I spent several summers in various courses in Heidelberg, Vienna and uh, Göttingen. And, uh, but when I finished my second undergraduate degree, because uh, when I, I went from South Africa, where I did a first undergraduate degree to Oxford, where they encouraged you to do a second undergraduate degree in uh, two years instead of three, um, it seemed to me that all of the interesting topics in the history of German National Socialism had already been investigated. This was in the early 1960s, just before the great uh, Fisher controversy and the subsequent uh, further evolution of the study of national socialism. I was clearly wrong, but I was looking for an alternative fascist or semi-fascist country where I could explore the interaction between yeah, ethnic and uh, 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 class politics. And the two countries which seemed to me the most interesting were Hungary and Poland. But coming from a background, my mother's family were Russified, they came from uh, Lithuania and Belarus, essentially. Uh, Poland was much more attractive. I always wanted to learn Russian, and this was a way to learn Russian, uh, paradoxically, I mean, but that's how I saw it. And in addition, uh, although, as I said, South Africa was in many ways a fairly uh, tightly controlled dictator dictatorship, there were whole areas where uh, one could get away with all sorts of odd uh, uh, political uh, 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 divergences. And one of these was that it was possible in South Africa to see all of the great Polish films of the late 1950s. I saw everything that was made by Vida, uh, and I was uh, Ashes and Diamonds, uh, Canal, and I was very much influenced by what I thought was the independent Polish road to socialism uh, of Bamulka. And so when I was looking for uh, 
doctoral dissertation, uh, I thought that it would be interesting to look at the breakdown of democratic institutions in Poland. Why did dictated, why did the democratic institutions established after the First World War, when Poland reemerged after 130 years as an independent state, why did these institutions function badly? And I got a British Council scholarship to Poland uh, in 1965, uh, one of the, just at the period when the political system, the Stalinist system was in the process of collapse. Well, the Stalinist system had collapsed in 56, but the Gomułka regime, which had replaced it, was now moving into a major crisis. So when I went to Poland, um, my basic view was that there was a loss of freedom under real socialism, but that this was compensated by a higher rate of economic growth and a greater degree of social equality. And it didn't take long because people spoke very openly in Poland before I became friendly with a lot of students and other people who subsequently to play an important role in the first in the in the political opposition to socialism in Poland and in the first solidarity, to realize that firstly, um, the idea that uh, the loss of freedom was only marginal, only affected the intelligentsia, only affected those people who rejected socialism, was quite wrong. That the degree of uh, the loss of freedom was far greater than in my native South Africa, and that it affected all aspects of society in a way that made impossible. Uh, a proper uh, approach to the serious problems which Poland faced. Secondly, it became obvious to us that there was a new ruling class, that Gilas had been correct, that uh, under socialism, a new elite had developed and that this new elite was quite privileged. We were living in a block of flats uh, because I went there with my wife and there was no accommodation for married couples in the residences. And we rented a flat which was uh, for the rest. Uh, it was a pre-war flat in Mokotov, which a uh, block of flats, which was uh, essentially uh, lived in by uh, uh, members of the communist elite. The minister of uh, health, Jerzy uh, Stachelski, was one of the neighbors. And it was clear that this group was uh, highly privileged. And as a result, I, I did, I, I mean, I'm one of those people who, <laughs> whose politics could, because it was so abstract, could change uh, drastically. And I did a 180 degree turn and became a supporter of the socialist opposition to the communist government of Poland, to uh, which first manifested itself in the student unrest in 1968. And 1968 was for me a crucial turning point for a number of reasons. Firstly, I was shocked that the communist regime in Poland could exploit crudely anti-Semitic slogans in order to retain its hold on power. This was something I had never thought was possible. Secondly, although I came from a very Jewish background, I'd gone to a school where it was a government school, but uh, it was 80% Jewish, the primary school. And uh, in the hour before school started from uh, eight o'clock to nine o'clock, there was a quotation marks voluntary Hebrew class, modern, modern Hebrew class every day. 
it was so voluntary that one term when I decided I didn't want to get up at eight o'clock, there was such strong peer pressure that uh, I had to give in. So I, I learned modern Hebrew and uh, growing up in uh, Jewish Johannesburg, one associated uh, almost exclusively with people of Jewish origin. Uh, but I had essentially rejected uh, Zionism, which I thought was uh, another bourgeois nationalist ideology. Uh, but I was shocked in 1968 by how uh, badly I felt uh, when Israel seemed to be threatened with destruction. And of course, like many uh, South African Jews, I also had relations in Israel. And so uh, 1968 marked by break with uh, 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 not only with communism, but marked a degree of uh, reconciliation with my Jewish background. Uh, I, I would say one thing about uh, uh, 1968, which really stuck in my mind, uh, because it also led to my abandoning my involvement in South African politics. In the run-up to the invasion of Czechoslovakia, the Warsaw Pact intervention in Czechoslovakia, um, the Communist Party of South Africa issued a statement warning the Czechoslovak comrades of the dangerous path on which they were engaged. And after the fraternal intervention, it uh, congratulated the countries of the Warsaw Pact on having brought to an end this threat to socialism. And this also struck me uh, very painfully. Uh, it meant not only that I had to break with uh, my naive ideas about how communism could evolve, but also with the belief that what we were pursuing in South Africa was a, a wholly just struggle. Second Cuba is a very interesting question, but without going into this in any detail, my view is essentially that without the collapse of the Soviet Union, the political transition would not have taken place in South Africa. Or if it had, it would have led to something like what happened in Angola and Mozambique, which was a protracted uh, civil war uh, with the communists on one side. And uh, I think that, that this transition, uh, which is a very important transition, uh, maybe it's gone sour now, uh, was very important in my own political thinking. So having made this break, um, I was, uh, involved, as I say, with the Polish opposition. And to the Polish political opposition, uh, and I, that's why I, I, I was involved in the development of the Committee for the Defense of the Workers. I was developed, we had an association or an organization in England before that to make possible the integration of Polish students who couldn't go back after 1968. And I was also involved in the first solidarity. Now, among the people that I knew, and there were many people who later were quite prominent in Polish uh, politics, Jan Spierbach, Adam Michnik, and many others, I don't want to mention too many names, but uh, in this whole group, one of the big questions about the introduction of martial law in December 1981 was, why were we so easily defeated? Why were we uh, who had, as we thought, the support of the majority of the Polish population so quickly crushed. Now, it's obvious from today's perspective, 
although maybe Ukraine shows this a little differently. But uh, in, in the case of Poland, the other side had an army and we didn't. And the other side was prepared to use force uh, and this made in the short run it possible to bring an end to the first solidarity. But within the circles in which I met, I was moved, the big discussion was what went wrong? What did we do wrong? And there were a whole series of explanations, but one explanation which was frequently put forward, and within these circles, there were a significant number of people of Jewish origin, as is well known, was that we had made an inadequate reckoning with the chauvinistic and anti-Semitic aspects of the Polish past. And people said to me, do you have links in the Jewish world? Because we need to move into, to establish some sort of dialogue uh, so that we can deal with these problems uh, and uh, resolve the difficult issues, which clearly, at least in our view, uh, made more difficult the establishment of a pluralistic and democratic political system. Um, so that's how I got involved in Jewish matters, because given that I'd had this Hebrew education, I could read Hebrew, and given that I'd learned German and uh, knew Hebrew anyway, uh, and if you know, I, mean, I shouldn't really say this, but I mean, if you know German and you know Hebrew, I mean, comfortable with the Hebrew alphabet, uh, it's Yiddish is not a major problem, as I'm sure you've discovered. Um, uh, so I, I knew the languages and I had many contacts in, in, these, in these circles. And so that's how I got involved in Jewish affairs. Previously, I had written essentially on problems of Polish politics. Why did the democratic system break down in Poland? Why was it, uh, who, who was, how did the Polish question evolve during the Second World War? Why did the Second World War end with a communist controlled Poland? Uh, how did the communists take power in Poland? What, what was the nature of the communist power in Poland? These were the questions with which I was uh, preoccupied. And I, I should say that one of the main lessons that I drew from 1981 was that we had not understood sufficiently, and I suppose this maybe even remains true today, understood the nature of Soviet communism or of uh, Russian nationalism. And I started learning Russian then, or improving my Russian. Uh, and I think that this was helpful in the context of my understanding of Poland, because I think if you associate mostly with people, uh, with people in Poland, you need to counteract the prevalent Russophobia. I think this remains the case today, actually, although uh, who can defend the Russians at these in the circumstances, but Russia is more than Putin, and this is another tragedy which one could talk about. Thank you. Um, could you tell us, or building on that chronologically, could you tell us about the process of writing Polish-Jewish history then um, in the <clears throat> period of transition in the 90s, you said that the idea of reckoning with Poland's past, anti-Semitic and chauvinistic past, was so crucial also for the remaking of Poland and the redefining of Poland and the Polish society finding itself um, in the context of this transition. Could you tell us a bit about the atmosphere, the processes, the scholarly questions that people had when they approached Polish-Jewish history and also the question of the history of other minorities in Poland? 
in this period? The 1980s, that is the period from the establishment of martial law to the negotiated end of communism in the summer of 1989, is a crucial period here. And this was a period in which we were quite optimistic, perhaps naively so. The fact was that Polish self-esteem, in spite of the defeat of martial law, was enormously increased by the fact that Poland was the most important, I'm now talking in Polish terms, but was seem, seemed to be the country which was in the front line of the attempt to transform the Soviet bloc. And that contrary to the history of the country, where there had been a series of unsuccessful and often futile insurrections, on this occasion, the Poles showed great self-discipline and avoided violence and avoided uh, a clash which led, could have led to civil war. And here, uh, I, I'm not going to support General Jaruzelski and the people around him, but they do. I mean, I think that it's interesting that in the last analysis, they, they held back from extreme violence, although the introduction of martial law was marked by violence. So the, the decade from, 18, from 1980 to 1990 was one in which all aspects of the Polish past could be re-examined. The government itself was trying to establish a degree of popular support, so it allowed people to travel, it allowed relatively free exchange of opinion, certainly in the, in the underground press. And this made possible a series of conferences uh, on the Polish-Jewish past. The first of these took place in Colombia in uh, 1983 uh, in New York. I wasn't there, but the problem with this one, conference was, I think, twofold. One, it was held in New York and was open to the public, which obviously is a good thing at one level, but it meant that uh, there were a lot of people with great bitterness on both sides who turned up and prepared, and this made a serious exchange of opinions more difficult to achieve. And secondly, it was before the Polish government was prepared to allow large numbers of people from Poland to go to such a conference. The second conference was held in Oxford in 1984, and this was a real breakthrough. It was a breakthrough because it was held in a fairly scholarly atmosphere in Oxford. Uh, but not only that, I had been in contact with the Polish embassy and I had been able uh, to persuade uh, through uh, my academic contacts that various Polish scholars had come to England in order to, to persuade us that martial law was the uh, best, the least bad alternative, Jerzy Viatra was the most important of these. I had lunch with Jerzy Viatra and uh, he explained what he was doing. I said, look, Jerzy, you're not going to persuade me that martial law is a good thing and I'm not going to persuade you that there was no alternative but for martial law. But let me raise another matter, which is that we are trying to organize this conference and nobody has got, none of the Polish scholars have been given visas. And this is a scholarly conference, and we believe that the open discussion of Polish-Jewish issues is something that's crucial 
if we are to establish a pluralistic and democratic society. And he said, well, you've persuaded me. If you come to the embassy on the 22nd of July, the Polish National Day, there was by that stage, at that stage, a, 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 a boycott of the embassy. I'll introduce you to a person who can, is crucial in this, and you can see uh, if you persuade. Anyway, I met this, I, I went there and I met the first secretary, Zygmunt Bakov, his name was. And I said what I'd said to Yeshi Biatra, and he said, well, what you had to say is, is interesting. Why don't you stay after the embassy party, uh, come to my room and we'll talk about this. So we talked and he said, I'm going to cable Warsaw that they should send people, that they shouldn't refuse people visas. Uh, now, of course, you know, interesting why they felt, why I took this position. I, I, I to say, later looked at my file, they thought that I had influence on uh, people in Israel and that this could facilitate the development of trading relations and uh, diplomatic relations with Israel, which of course is completely naive. Uh, I, I was not an important person in that sense. But the fact was that a significant number of people came to the conference, Yezhi Turovich, Yezhi uh, uh, Tomaszewski, but also a significant number of, of Israelis, Israel Gutman, for instance. And uh, unlike the conference in Colombia, we decided we have to spend a whole day on the Holocaust because this is the central issue. It's like the old Irish joke. Man asks a farmer, how do I get from here to Dublin? And the farmer answers, if I was going to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. If you want to start, improve Polish-Jewish relations, you wouldn't start from uh, the Second World War. But we did. And among the people who participated in the debate was a prominent Polish emigre, Josef uh, uh, Garlinski, and Israel Gutmann, Josef uh, Lichten. It was a very painful debate. But as it went on, people spoke more and more openly and it became more and more apparent that there was a desire on both sides to get beyond the primitive cliches that all Poles had been uh, eager to rescue Jews, that anti-Semitism was a marginal factor in Polish life, that it was the Jews themselves who had collaborated with the Nazis in their own destruction. All of these tropes which were part of the discourse were undermined. And it was felt that we really had achieved something. And it was out of this that it was decided to set up a yearbook uh, to study Polish Jewish history, which you mentioned, Pauline, was established at the house of Jerzy uh, Kolokowski, the, 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 the philosopher, another figure deeply committed to, to these changes. Uh, Leszek Kolokowski, I'm sorry, uh, somebody committed to, to these changes. And this meant that the subsequent conferences, which were held in, in Krakow and in Brandeis and ultimately in Jerusalem, and the showing of the film Shoah by Claude Lanzmann, which was organized in Oxford, in the presence of a number of people from Poland, including Jerzy uh, Turowicz uh, and Jerzy Tomaszewski, created a new atmosphere. 
And this atmosphere dominated the 1990s. And uh, two new things, two new factors developed in the 1990s. The first was there were a series of Polish Jewish writers, Henrik Grinberg uh, is a good example, uh, who now began to describe their experiences, children in occupied Poland, and their experiences were largely negative, and these were very difficult to negate because they were first-hand descriptions. Secondly, there was now, uh, archives were much more open, and it was much easier to look at the archival material. And it was out of this new situation that uh, Jan Gross's book, Neighbors, uh, in Polish, Sosiedzi, emerged. This book, as everybody knows, describes how in a small Polish town in what's today northeastern Poland, the Balki province, um, with German incitement, but with actual little German participation, the local Polish population turned on its Jewish neighbors, that's why the book is called Neighbors, and murdered most of them burning about 600 ultimately in a barn. We've just commemorated the 81st anniversary of the Yedvapne massacre. And um, I mean, this is a complicated and uh, controversial matter, but I'm happy to say that on this occasion, the local bishop participated, uh, the president of Poland sent a wreath. So it wasn't uh, politicized, it was a, a matter of sadness, which we all, which, which all aspects, all sides of Polish, a society commemorated. And the uh, publication of Neighbours was followed by various other investigations of the difficult aspects of the Polish past, uh, a Polish Jewish past, and also an attempt to place this Polish Jewish past in a larger context. That's what I was trying to do in my three volume history. Out of this emerged the Center for the Study of the Holocaust of the Polish Academy of Sciences, which is headed by Professor uh, Barbara Engelking. And uh, their research is important because what they did was they looked at what one might describe as the third stage of the Holocaust in Poland. The first stage is the German invasion and the use of mobile killing squads to kill, uh, firstly in the Soviet Union, Jews, commiss Jewish commissars, uh, Jews and co Jewish commissars and other communist officials, then or male Jews and then Jewish women and children. And this evolved into the second stage when uh, death camps, uh, Treblinka, Belgitz, Majdanek, and the reorganized part of the camp of Auschwitz were created and Jews were deported and uh, killed with industrialized methods of mass murder. In these two stages, the amount of non-Jewish involvement was relatively small, but the school, uh, the, the, the Center for the Study of the Holocaust began to examine the third stage, that's the stage after the deportation of Jews from the big ghettos, uh, and examined what happened to the Jews in the smaller ghettos, which were less well policed, and were in towns where uh, Polish-Jewish relations were more distant, there was less organized rescue. And uh, the figures are disputed, but probably around 200,000 uh, people, Jews escaped from these uh, 
ghettos, but most of them did not survive. They were hunted down by the German occupying force, but with the assistance of uh, the Polish police established by the Germans, a collaborationist force and other collaborationist elements such as the village uh, administrations, and in some cases also sections of the Polish underground, which saw these people as endangering uh, the civilian population. And this created a situation in which uh, we had a, a very strongly self-critical account of the Polish Jewish past. Uh, and not surprisingly, it aroused a negative reaction, a, a patriotic reaction, which was identified with the populist government, which came to power first in 2005 and then uh, 2007, and then again in 2015. Um, the populist government was determined to advance an agenda which, in their view, would show that Poles by and large had behaved in a heroic manner under the occupation, that the stereotype of the Poles as martyrs and heroes uh, was basically accurate, uh, and that uh, the attempt to describe the negative aspects of the Polish past was being carried out by people who were disloyal to the Polish national, hostile to the Polish national interests, and at the behest of foreigners, uh, in many cases also Jews. Now, this meant that the uh, such controversies are normal in historical uh, investigation. After the publication by uh, Fritz Fischer of the Griff nach der Weltmacht, Germany's bid for world power, there was a bitter controversy about how accurate Fischer's argument was and whether one could draw from the German expansionist goals before the First World War, similar expansionist goals lying at the root of the national socialist aspirations. And this controversy was very bitter, but in the end, it led to the creation of some degree of consensus. This, hadn't this didn't happen in Poland. The two groups remained far apart. The situation has changed now with the, so with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is clearly seen by many people in Poland as a direct threat to Polish independence, correctly. And it's also meant that the old disputes between Poles and Ukrainians, which were very bitter, I mean, at least 70,000 Poles died in the attempts at ethnic cleansing in Volhynia and uh, former East Galicia, and uh, at least 10,000 Ukrainians were killed in the various reprisals undertaken by the Polish forces. If these figures are low, it could give higher figures. If you, some people give a figure of 100,000 Polish dead. Um, but this appears less important. Uh, you could see this in the recent controversy over the remarks of the Polish, of the Ukrainian ambassador in Berlin, who was in fact dismissed by the Ukrainian government for uh, supporting uh, the position of Petluro, who was the leader of main leader of the Ukraine. I mean, he was in German in a German camp, but he had been one of the people who uh, strong who had established the movement to resist uh, both uh, communism and uh, 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 national socialism. Um, and the hope is, I think, that in this new situation, 
Poles, who Polish civil society has shown great energy in its attempt to support the Ukrainian refugees and to support the Ukrainian uh, struggle. Uh, and this has been reciprocated by the Ukrainians. Uh, the hope is that this will create a different atmosphere in which these difficult issues can be, uh, between Poles and Jews, can also be discussed in a more uh, balanced way. There are indications that this is taking place. I mentioned what happened in the government. There are also indications that the older political narrative is still, or at least the apologetic narrative, is still being pursued. But a lot will depend on really what happens ultimately in Ukraine. And um, it's difficult, uh, you know, uh, to predict what can happen here. The sad situation is that neither side can really afford to lose, and that makes uh, any sort of satisfactory solution a little unlikely. Um. So next year, um, the Pauline uh, Museum, Museum in Warsaw uh, will celebrate its 10th anniversary. You played a leading role in the creation of this institution, which I believe, knowing this place quite well, um, is absolutely unique in a European and international context. Can you tell us about the process of the establishment of the museum and the significance of this institution? The establishment of the museum owes a lot to a lot of different people, to Barbara Kirschenblatt, Gimblet, uh, to the uh, members of the Jewish Historical, the Association of the Jewish Historical Institute. The idea was to do something similar to what had been achieved in uh, with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. But the establishment of the museum which was supported both by uh, Lech Kaczynski when he was president and subsequently by the uh, government of the Platforma, ran into significant difficulties in 2012-2013. And here a, a very important development was the appointment uh, as director of Dariusz Stola. Now, Dariusz Stola was somebody who had worked on Polish Jewish history, but who understood the need to create a museum which uh, would be able to speak to Polish society as a whole. And oddly enough, the, the two main issues which were causing problems in the museum were how does one describe the events of 1968? How much support did the events of 1968, the anti-Zionist in quotation marks purge, have in Polish society? And secondly, how is one to describe the involvement of people of Jewish origin in the communist movement? And there was a lot of discussion about how this should be done, but in the end, a consensus was agreed, was reached, that one that the one couldn't avoid the fact that the government achieved some success in mobilizing people with an anti-Semitic uh, 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 program in 1968, and secondly that 
there were a whole series of reasons as to why the communist movement should have been attractive to people of Jewish origin. I've described my own involvement, at least tangentially with it. Uh, and I think that we were able to persuade the then Minister of Culture that this was the way to go. This all happened before the populists came to power. The museum was opened, the permanent exhibition was in place before the present government came to power. And it has to be said that the present government has not interfered much with the museum. It did interfere when the museum had a temporary exhibition on the 50th anniversary of the events of 1968, which highlighted the way in which the hate speech which marked 1968 was now again being expressed in uh, online commentaries on Polish events today. This was very much resented by the authorities, by the Minister of Culture. Um, and because of this, they refused to reappoint uh, Dario Stoller when his five-year term came to an end. And instead, a compromise was reached, and it has to be said it was a compromise, by which uh, another of the deputy directors of the museum, Zygmunt Stempinski, was appointed director, and I think that this was a reasonable compromise. It has to be said the government has interfered with other museums. The Museum of the History of the Second World War is a good example. But in the last analysis, it hasn't so far interfered with the Pauline Museum. And I think under the present situation, we have to see how it all evolves. I think it's unlikely to, to do so now. Uh, this is a time when everybody in Poland needs to stand together. And I think one of the heartening features of the present situation is that many of, and a significant proportion of the Ukrainian refugees are people of Jewish origin. And nobody has made any distinction there. We can talk about the problem of non-Ukrainian refugees, but that's a different problem. And you know, I, I don't think it's, it's really important here, at least the, the, what one has to understand here is that it's very easy to see why for Poles, Ukrainians are fighting for the same struggle, for the same aims, and a Ukrainian defeat would be a Polish defeat. And, but I think that this, this has created a new situation, at least I hope it's created a new situation. Uh, the evidence goes both ways, but I, I, I would accentuate the positive aspect of this. Finally, um, when we, when you're looking at the field of Polish Jewish history and um, Polish uh, Jewish studies today, where will it go or where should it go? In, in, and I mean this in, in multiple ways. So there's on the one side, there's especially in Eastern and Central Europe, there's a concerted attack um, by governments. I'm thinking about the, the laws in, uh, introduced in Poland and of course in a completely different context, but I think about the um, despicable propaganda of the Putin regime or denazification and so on. So what position should historians take in these conflicts? Where should, what is our role in these debates? And the other question in a more practical sense, maybe, when we're looking at the field 
today? Where is it going? Where should it go? Where, where should young people um, working on Polish Jewish history look towards? You know, we were very preoccupied with the populist threat to history. And the populist threat to history was dangerous and it was something which affected, I mean, if we take the Polish case, but you could find it, the, the similar reactions elsewhere in Eastern Europe, particularly in the areas which have suffered violence in the 1990s, uh, Serbia, Croatia, uh, Bosnia, uh, Macedonia, uh, Bulgaria, although Bulgaria is a little different from that, but in all of these areas, Apologetic historians are, uh, or apologetic history has been an important element of what's going on. And you can also find this uh, in, even in Germany, where a serious attempt was made to come to terms with the difficult past. But now there, there has been attempts to argue that this had gone too far. All of this is on a very small scale compared to the claim by Putin that there is no such thing as a Ukrainian nation, that uh, we need 40 years of re-education to make the Ukrainians into Russians, that uh, this, is the, the, this, is, this is not a question of, I mean, when he talks about denazification, what he means is Russification. And um, I think we are aware that there's a difference between what is going on in Russia and what is going on in Eastern Europe. What, what this means, and I think that you can see this clearly in the whole way in which the issue of the UPA and of the ON in Ukraine has been discussed in recent weeks, um, it's very important to say that we understand why in the past uh, some Ukrainians supported formations which uh, saw the future of Ukraine is being linked with a national socialist victory. But this was a mistake. This was an understandable mistake, but it was a mistake. And we need to recognize that, uh, we need to examine all of this and explain the context. Uh, and I think that if we are to build a democratic and uh, pluralistic world, we have to, reckon with a past which is uh, difficult, complex, and often disputed. This is part of uh, the way in which democratic societies function. But I, I would say here, and I mean, this is, I mean, I, I, this is what we should be doing. I, I'm talking now in, in uh, I hate to say this, rabbinic terms of priest, I mean, in uh, these are these are these are moralistic rather than 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 uh, political terms, but this is a serious problem. And I, I mean, if, if I look at my own life, I've been preoccupied with uh, transitions, with three transitions, with the transition from uh, white supremacy to uh, majority rule in South Africa, with the transition from uh, communist monopolistic political system in Poland to a pluralistic and democratic system and to uh, transition which hasn't taken place yet to some sort of accommodation between Israelis and Palestinians in the Near East. In the year 2012, you could say, well, the first two are well established and the third transition is likely to, is moving ahead. It's much more difficult to do that today. 
it's much more important today than ever for us to stress the uh, value of uh, history which seeks to explain rather than to condemn or uh, apologize or, 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 or justify. Um, I was just in uh, uh, both Serbia and uh, Croatia. And I mean, we're a long way there from getting to a situation where we can understand how it was, as Gross himself said, this is what inspired him, how neighbors could kill neighbors, how people could kill people whose first names they knew. And this is, of course, the same problem which we look at in some aspects of the elements which you see in Poland or Ukraine, uh, uh, Belarus, uh, Lithuania, uh, during the Second World War. We can see it happening again. And in a situation where we can see it happening again, we need to learn from the past. But it's much more difficult because the situation is not resolved. And uh, the, I just read a prophetic article written by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in 1997. In 1997, he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in which he said, can, which he asked the question, can democracy survive? And he says, democracy survived the first world, second, the, the 20th century by the skin of its teeth. And it's going to be very difficult for democratic institutions to survive the 21st century. We need great wisdom and we'll need a, a serious attempt to establish the values of democratic uh, politics, which means, which means that you abide by the rules of the game and that you listen to your opponents and also that we need to establish uh, attitude towards the past which recognizes uh, both uh, the good side of the past and the negative side of the past. If we look at the dispute which marks the conflict, the attack of the populists on history, what there is something to be said on both sides. Obviously, the, 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 the populists are attempting at one level to produce an apologetic version of history. But there is a need for a history which stresses patriotic values and which stresses those elements of the national past which unite us. But there's also a need for a history which stresses what went wrong, where we made mistakes, and what we need to do to create a national community which includes all of the elements in the society, both in the past and in the present. Um, and I think that this is the challenge we face today. Uh, and, you know, I hope that we are able to answer this challenge successfully. But I have to say, and I suppose it's part of one's age, that uh, I'm not entirely convinced that we will. And I, I think that you ask, what is the role of the historians? The role of historians is the role of concerned citizens. It's the role of people who are committed to the preservation and development and preservation of pluralistic and democratic societies. Uh, this is not only related to history, but history is a part of it. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Not at all. Well, let's. Let's hope for the best.